0: Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode 138, Gianni Ribeiro, Visual Decision Aids for Forensic Science Evidence. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Gianni Ribeiro. Gianni is a lecturer in criminology and criminal justice at the University of Southern Queensland in Australia. Our podcast today features Gianni's new article, Visual Decision Aids, Improving Lay People's Understanding of Forensic Science Evidence. It was co-authored with Helena Lickwornick and Jason Chin and published this year in the Journal of Applied Research in Memory and Cognition. In it, Gianni reports on three psychological experiments which try to improve laypeople's understanding of forensic science results. For example, suppose that the police obtain a positive result on a breathalyzer test. That breathalyzer test, of course, has a certain accuracy rate for positive results, which needs to be accounted for. In addition, we also know that there are base rates for drunk driving in the population, and these base rates are important for deciding whether the defendant was actually drunk. The problem, of course, is that calculating the correct probability of whether the defendant was drunk involves exactly that, a bunch of calculations and most people, even mathematical people, have trouble doing this on the fly and gaining a good intuition about the numbers. Gianni's idea is to present this kind of information visually and perhaps through these visualizations we can get laypersons, whether they be jurors or judges, to assess forensic evidence better. My discussion with Gianni takes a look at her study and asks whether visual aids can indeed help lay people understand forensic science results better. Gianni, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thanks so much. I'd like to start with some context behind your study about visual decision aids and forensic science. Broadly speaking, What was the problem regarding forensic results that you and your co-authors were trying to address, and why were visual decision aids something that you wanted to try?
1: Absolutely. So, Helena really brought this idea to the table, I suppose. Helena is legal counsel at the Court of Appeal in Toronto, and there's been this controversy with the motherist drug lab inside Toronto's Hospital for Sick Children. So they were doing drug and alcohol tests on hair strands from between about 2005 to 2015 and then it was sort of identified that oh this might not be so great. So there was a whole inquiry around that with really some not great findings at all. Analysts without forensic training, unreliable methods, A lot of kids being taken away from their families and even being adopted out. So there was a lot of catastrophic results that occurred because of this flawed forensic science.
0: And why was it that you wanted to try to use the visual decision aids? What led you to that particular solution?
1: Well, I think from my perspective, a lot of my work has looked at forensic science and sort of thinking about other Disciplines or domains that have come across these issues with error rates, these issues with uncertainty, but that might be a little bit further along than forensic science in that respect. So, one of those areas is medicine. They've sort of dealt with this issue of error and uncertainty for a lot longer and have a few more aces up their sleeve in how to deal with that. And so, visual decision aids are often used between doctors and patients to describe risk, to describe the uncertainty of taking this drug over this other drug or to go ahead and do this surgery or not. And they develop those decision aids in consultation with patients and assess their understanding and look at their understanding as a result of that. And those decision aids have some promising results in terms of how patients can understand risk and then make better decisions as a result of seeing those decision aids. So we wanted to try and see if we could apply it to the forensic domain and use this paper as a proof of concept, if you will.
0: So many of your experiments in the paper revolve around base rates and positive predictive values, which, of course, are very important in diagnostic testing. But they're also very confusing sometimes to the uninitiated. Can you just take a minute to explain to our audience what a positive predictive value is and why it's an important probability for understanding forensic science results?
1: Positive predictive value is really just if you look at a test and the test says positive for alcohol use, then the positive predictive value is, okay, out of the number of tests that say there is a positive reading for alcohol, how many of those positive values actually are a true positive? So people that actually did consume alcohol versus people that didn't, so a false positive in that case. So it's that proportion of true positives to false positives.
0: And of course, it's different from what we normally think of as an accuracy rate, right? And it's also different from the base rate, but in order to calculate the positive predictive value, you actually need the base rate.
1: Yeah, it's definitely very dependent on the base rate. And then, like you said, different to accuracy, different to sensitivity and specificity of tests, which is what I think people might be more used to talking about. We definitely are in the research psychology sort of realm, so it can be confusing to get your head around these different terms.
0: Okay, so let's dive into your experiments. Your paper talks about three different experiments, but in the interest of time, I'd like to focus on the first experiment and then let you incorporate the others whenever you think it's appropriate or needed. Can you briefly summarize what you asked your subjects to do in the first experiment?
1: So in our first study, we were really looking at whether people could understand the positive predictive value over and above things like the base rate and sensitivity and specificity of the test. And so in this experiment, we based it really on the mother's drug lab issue. So we looked at a suspected child abuse case and the mother underwent a test for cocaine and whether or not people could understand the results of that test. So it was an online study, and all of our participants read a short scenario about that child abuse case. So really, it was just a couple of sentences describing that there may be indicators that this child was being neglected. And then they went on to read the results of the drug test. So essentially, they were told that the base rate was 20%. So 20% of people tested at this lab are cocaine users. And then they were told information about the sensitivity and specificity without using those words. So this test correctly gives a positive result for a drug user 80% of the time. And it also correctly gives a negative result for a non-drug user 80% of the time. And then we went on to tell them, well, this mother tested positive for cocaine use, but she denies ever using cocaine. And so after all of the participants read those bits and pieces, we randomly assigned them to receive a decision aid or not. So one group didn't receive any decision aid. That's all they were told. The next group received a decision aid in the frequency format. So we had dots depicting individuals and grouped them into people who tested negative, people who tested positive, and the colors of the dots represented whether they were an actual drug user or not. And then we did that same information for a different group, but in a pie chart format. And the reason why we did two decision aids was because we weren't really sure which one might be more easily understood, but both of these types of decision aids are used in the medical domain. And so we then just asked them questions about their understanding on that. So how likely is it the mother actually used cocaine in their opinion? whether the court should take into account the mother's positive test result when deciding whether or not to place her child in a foster home, and then whether or not they believed the mother when she says she never used cocaine.
0: I want to ask you a little bit more about the pie chart. So I love the idea of the frequency chart, the one with the dots. That's how I teach the idea of positive predictive value when I teach statistics for lawyers, And I kind of think that's the most intuitive way of understanding the idea. A little bit more curious about the pie chart, because at least in the visual statistics realm, pie charts are often thought to be distortive because the area of the wedge in the pie chart doesn't grow linearly. It grows by the square. And so visual stats people often deride them. Why the pie chart? Is it just because it it happens to also be used in the medical context?
1: Essentially, I completely agree with you. I'm a big fan of frequency-based information and visualizations. I absolutely thought that the frequency aid would blow the pie chart out of the water. So I was a bit surprised to find that there was no difference in this experiment. But yeah, there's a great website, it's Canadian-based, that has a range of these medical decision aids on them. So we used that as a starting point to look at different aids and think, what should we potentially include in this study? And that's how we came up with the pie chart. But I agree, I, I'm not really a fan at all. So it was really just to test that out. And I think the result was a bit surprising to
0: us. So the pie chart and the frequency chart didn't really have a difference between the two, What were the other major results that you found between the experimental group and the control group?
1: So like I said, no real difference between the frequency aid and the pie chart aid, but we did find that there were differences between the two aids and that control condition. So participants in the frequency and pie chart aids were less likely to say that the mother used cocaine than the control group and more likely to believe the mother's denial that she has never used cocaine, and less likely to believe that the court should take into account the test. It's important to note they were still above that midpoint on the scale, so they, on the whole, I guess, were still leaning towards that the court should take into account the test, but less so than the control group.
0: At least with the first experiment, it certainly seems that using visual aids can help people understand the numbers better. Because in this case, if you take into account the base rate, the probability that the mother used cocaine is much less than the 80% of the test. That, I think, is in some ways not surprising to me. People like visual stuff than the numbers. I'd like to probe a couple of other results that you report, which I thought were more surprising. The first was that although the visual aids made the subjects actually understand the material better, I guess you found that the control group without the aids thought that they understood the material better when they in fact did not. So in some ways, ignorance of the complexity is bliss. Is there something in particular that we should take away from that result?
1: I think that was really interesting as well. So yes, the control group were significantly more likely to say that they understood the decision aid well. So the question there was how easy was it for you to understand the information presented to you about the cocaine test? So yes, they were more likely to say that they understood it than the frequency and the pie chart groups. But again, I think it's important to note that the frequency in the pie chart groups were still above that midpoint. So they weren't necessarily saying, this is really difficult for me to understand. They were just potentially a little less confident in their judgments about their understanding than the control group. So I think it wouldn't be fair to conclude that they felt they didn't understand, but more just they felt that they understood a little bit less. But nevertheless, I think that's definitely very interesting and might reflect, you know, having less information to go off. So going off just the written couple of sentences about the test might produce some aura of overconfidence than having additional information, even though that visual information didn't add anything new. It was just representing that verbal information in a different format.
0: And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think another interesting result was that Although as a population, the visual aid group did better, it seems that you were still only reaching a minority, that the modal response in these cases was still wrong. Any concerns there?
1: Yeah, so the modal response for all groups was still that, the sensitivity value, so 80% rather than the positive predictive value, which was 50%. So we did see that people were still stuck on that sensitivity value rather than really working out and seeing that the test is really 50-50 in terms of if you get a positive test, 50% likely that person actually is a cocaine user versus a non-cocaine user. So it's very interesting to see that and i think that's probably the next step in this line of work is how can we make those decision aids more powerful getting at that a little bit more to sort of improve people's decision making and understanding
0: i had two broader questions for you about priors and Really, the experiment is really in many ways about priors. You are given an accuracy rate number, and you have to combine it with a prior in order to get that positive predictive value and get the right probability. The first question is whether in the cocaine hypothetical, 20% is really the correct prior. Implicitly, of course, you set up the experiment that way, and the visual aids assume that 20% is the true prior. But aren't you, in a sense, forcing your subjects into that particular prior? So, for example, what if one of the experimental subjects wanted to incorporate other facts that you gave the subject into setting the prior, like their own experience or maybe the other facts that were in the hypothetical itself?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a difficult one to answer because... Like you said, we needed to give them a prior in terms of the base rate of cocaine users that the lab actually tests in order to give them the full information that they needed to work out the positive predictive value. But absolutely, I think they could have drawn from the hypothetical. Um, We did try to make it quite nonspecific, quite ambiguous. It's very short. It does say that after a period of supervision... The Children's Aid Society sort of concluded that the mother's parenting abilities might be lacking and they suspected that she was using cocaine and that may be affecting her ability to parent. So there's definitely information in there that they may have drawn on to say, hey, maybe the prior isn't 20%. It's higher than that because we have additional information about this specific mother that might affect our decision-making. Absolutely.
0: I suppose also that just as a matter of anchoring, you've presented a 20% number, so they're going to want to use that for some reason, but something I think perhaps to think about. The second question, I think, is a broader question. As legal actors, should we worry about the fact that positive predictive value requires a prior? From a statistical perspective, obviously, there are many reasons why we should be focusing on positive predictive value, but... A prior necessarily means assuming some level of guilt to start, and that's largely through association. In the hypothetical, it's that if the government picks you out and tests you, then you're starting at 20%. Now, my question is, is that a problem? And maybe the way to really think about this is with a more extreme example, because In your second experiment, you start with a prior of 90%, that 90% of the test subjects end up being actually positive. And the math, of course, all works out. But something just seems wrong about using a 90% prior to calculate positive predictive value, and then from there, liability or guilt.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree. That's an interesting one with the second experiment, where you have such a high prior that The positive predictive value just shoots, but then also the negative predictive value is not good. But in terms of that, I I definitely do agree it's problematic, especially what you just said about if a government picks someone out to test, then you're already starting with that prior and that assumption potentially of some level of guilt there. So I think that is something that we definitely need to grapple with in, in these areas is how much... Do we take into account that prior? I think in some aspects of life, obviously, base rates are such a good way to make decisions, right? So if I'm deciding what movie that I want to watch tonight, Rotten Tomatoes is definitely going to be where I go. And if I see the base rate is 86% of people like this movie, it's highly likely that I'm probably going to like that movie too. Taking out of it how much I try to overestimate or over emphasize my own quirks or movie taste or that kind of thing. I know I'm bringing this much more serious issue down to what movie I'm going to watch tonight, but I think in those kind of instances where the decisions are less consequential, base rates can be highly useful and they can definitely be useful in a legal decision as well. But I think there definitely are issues with those base rates. And I mean, if you take into account where someone lives, if they're living in an area that does have a high cocaine use population of users, then that base rate's going to shoot up. Whereas if they're living somewhere else, and then they're picked out from the government to have that testing, then that base rate may be lower for that area. So then you're getting into socioeconomic status issues there, and that can be definitely problematic.
0: It's always such a fascinating issue that decision-making really does require base rates to be accurate. And then on the other hand, There are all of these equity concerns by applying base rates to people based on association. Final question for you. What's next for this project for you? Or are there things that you'd like other people in the field to think about associated with your findings?
1: I think the next step for us would be to look at how we could improve those decision aids. Really, if you look at them in the paper, they're very simple. So I think that trying to improve those, improve people's understanding, see if we can reduce their reliance on that sensitivity value and push them more towards the positive predictive value to understand that would be the way to go. I haven't really thought too much about how best to do that. So if anyone has any tips, that would be fantastic. But I think a lot of people are doing similar work in this area. A good friend of mine, Rachel Searston at the University of Adelaide, just got a fellowship to look at creating an error database, an error tool that people can use to understand errors in fingerprint evidence and that kind of thing. So she's definitely working on this kind of area as well and seeing how we could improve people's understanding using visual tools.
0: Well, Gianni, thanks for taking the time to talk about your study on visual aids for forensic evidence. Great having you on the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: I've long used frequency charts to explain the idea of positive predictive value when I've taught statistics for lawyers, but I'd never thought about using them to help courts. Along these lines, I think Gianni's idea is as creative as it is brilliant. All of these numbers regarding sensitivity and base rates are typically sure to draw nothing but blank stares but create a chart with a population of drunk and sober drivers, and suddenly, people start to get an intuition of things. And as Gianni's research shows, these visual aids do in fact work. Not perfectly, but they certainly help. Beyond the study's basic proposal and empirical results, though, I found several things fascinating. First is the problem of overconfidence. The subjects who received less information and actually did not understand the material as well thought that the information was more understandable. This result just goes to show you how difficult it is to convey technical information and to induce people to grapple with it. The second thing is the problem of priors which is ultimately the subject of a rather expansive literature. If positive predictive value is indeed the correct way of thinking about the outcome of forensic tests, and positive predictive value requires a prior, where does the prior come from? And as I mentioned in the interview, is it fair to use a highly inculpatory prior? If 90% of people tested actually are found to use drugs, can we legitimately use that to calculate a new person's positive predictive value? In any event, I think the use of visual aids to increase numeracy is a promising area of further research. And I look forward to seeing what Gianni and her colleagues continue to find in their future studies. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Branstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the University of Arkansas School of Law. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Kyra Hammond, and background music is provided by Kirsten Castle-Greer, Felix Wong, and Alex Crew. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you will join us again next time we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. ¶¶